Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Good to be with you guys again, and it's exciting, as always, to, to worship uh, with you all. Um, I, I think uh, today, Jen actually uh, was, uh, came early to rehearse with us, and she made notice of the lamps uh, that are up here. They've been up with us, I think, three or four weeks now. Um, and the lamps were actually gifted to us by the Grunwalds. Uh, Matt and Sarah. Matt, uh, for most of you probably know, maybe you don't, but Matt is an extremely handy guy. Uh, he's definitely a, a person who works with his hands, and he's got a lot of imagination, but he's, he's really good at working with his hands. Uh, and so I went to him with an idea of making these lamps a couple of months ago, um, and he, he drew them up, and well, I drew them up, and then he made like exactly what I wanted come to life, and it was really incredible. And I remember, you know, thanking him um, because I thought it was just so neat that although Matt's not necessarily a musical person, that his handiwork is up on the stage and kind of helps add to uh, our worship service. And, you know, since then, I've been thinking about, you know, the diversity that we have uh, in our small church. You know, even though uh, it's small and there aren't a lot of us, unbelievably, there are so many things on which we are different from one another. Uh, some of us are musical. Uh, some of us are handy uh, with uh, our hands. Uh, some of us, uh, you know, grew up in church. Some of us didn't. Some of us are used to faith life, and some of us are still pondering it. Uh, and there's just so many differences, actually, between us. I mean, even the way our personalities are shaped, they're very different. And in reality, those diversities, the things that make us different from one another, often enough, can be a stumbling block in most organizations, right? Typically, any healthy organization that has a mission is going somewhere specific. They all work in unison. They all work together. They try not to differ too much because we're all kind of rowing the boat, right, in one direction. And so diversity is not always the greatest thing. In fact, sometimes, even for us in church, it can be really hard for us to see what role we each play at church. Where is our place here? And sometimes even that can be kind of a hang-up, not knowing where we fit in, where we're supposed to be. And even though our backgrounds are varied, I think that there's this specific truth that we need to understand, adopt, and just kind of get through. And it's this, that church is mixed, but it must still be united. Even though we all come from different backgrounds and bring different gifts and talents to the table, even if sometimes we might not see things eye to eye or agree all the way, it doesn't matter. Yes, the church is mixed, and it must be united, because there is one goal. There is a target. It is to glorify God by spreading his name to the people around us who are so desperate for the name of Jesus Christ. That's what this sermon series, On the Move, is about. It is the beginning of the church. It is about spreading the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ's death, and particularly his resurrection. That's the mission. That's the goal. And no matter what, even if you and I might do that differently or disagree about how that's done, we have to be united in how us as a small church moves together. Yes, the church is mixed, but it has to be united. And this can be hard to accomplish when we come from a bunch of different places. But it is a fact. The church is mixed, and we must be united. And really, that's what we're going to be looking at today. 
how do we, a bunch of different personalities, a bunch of different gifts, a bunch of different talents, backgrounds, and experiences, how do we get all of this different stuff and get it together to be unified and move forward? How are we going to do that? Well, today in our scripture, in Acts, we're going to be looking at, and this should be really exciting to us, we're going to be looking at the first Christian church. And I'm not talking about first Christian church like the 10 that you drove past to get here today, because so many churches are named first Christian church. I'm talking about literally, literally the first Christian church. And so I'm excited to kind of work through that because there is obviously a lot of diversity in that church and a lot that they had to accomplish and work through to be united. And so I think that as we look at how they did it, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. We're going to learn a lot about what role you and I, we play together in being united for a mission-oriented, a mission-gold kind of church. Now to recap, last week we talked about Peter for the very first time speaking to a centurion, uh, a centurion and speaking to the very first Gentile. Peter was given this vision where he finally could actually go outside of Judaism go outside of the Jewish religion to talk about Jesus. He goes to this centurion uh, named Cornelius and speaks to him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he receives the Holy Spirit and his, his, him and his troop are baptized. This is incredible because this is the first time that a Gentile, an outsider like you and me, an outsider received the gospel. That was a miracle. It was amazing. It happened about a handful of years after the day of Pentecost. So it's actually been kind of slow going. We read through these chapters so quickly, but in years are passing. And so finally, Peter is allowed to go and speak to outside of the Jewish people. This is a really big deal, a really big culture change. In fact, it was so difficult that when you jump in today's text of Acts chapter 11, the first half of 11, is the people, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, actually kind of having difficulty believing Peter. They're like, wait, what happened? What, you, where were you? You went down to Joppa, and then you moved up to Cornelius, and the Gentiles are now receiving us? This is wild. And Peter had to document and kind of tell them step by step what happened that he was able to uh, evangelize to uh, these Gentiles. And so after Peter goes through it for the first half, of chapter 11, finally they heard this. When they heard this, this is Peter's account of what happened to Cornelius. When they heard this, they had no further objections, meaning they had some objections, right? Because this is a weird story going outside of the Jewish faith. And praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is good news for us. Because if this story didn't exist, you and I, we wouldn't be here. I mean, I, unless some people here are Jewish or part Jewish or something. But this is the gateway. This is, this, this is us. This is how we get grafted into, oh, a little bit. Oh, so some of you get to go. Nice. Very good. Now, the rest of chapter 11 actually talks about the development of the first Christian church. I mean, literally, they mention Christian in it. This is the first Christian church in Antioch, literally the first one, in Acts chapter 11, 19 through 20. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, 
spreading the word only among Jews. See, again, they, they weren't going out to Gentiles, not yet. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. So this is really weird. Again, Peter received a vision to be able to speak to Gentiles, but no one else. So it's kind of odd that a couple of guys, unnamed guys started speaking to Greeks already, telling them the good news, the gospel news about the Lord Jesus. The first church outside of the fully Jewish population was founded in Antioch, estimated to be about seven to eight years after the day of Pentecost. So from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 11, where we are, it's actually been seven to eight years. So the gospel, it is on the move, and thousands have happened, and a lot has happened. But still, to me, I'm kind of surprised, right? Because it's really easy in this form, in, in the way that Acts is written, to kind of just plow through Scripture, right? Because it's in a story format. It's kind of an adventure book. Sometimes it's easier to cook through adventure books than it is through fiction book or uh, nonfiction books, historic. Sometimes it's hard for that. Maybe Jake might disagree. Okay, or agree. Thank you. Um, and so it's easy to read through this really quickly, but in reality, it's actually been seven to eight years. Now, the city of Antioch, I want to paint you a picture of what we're actually looking at here. The city of Antioch, also known as Antioch the Beautiful, all right, was actually an amazing city. This 300-year-old city was known for sophistication, and it was actually known for its diversity. It was a port city populated by 500,000 people in Antioch. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think about history, I think about little rink-a-dink tents. I think about, you know, small city. This is 500,000 people. Neither Minneapolis or St. Paul are as large. Right? Did you know that? Minneapolis is at 422,000. St. Paul, just over 300,000. And then when you look at the greater, we get into multiple millions, you know, because we're still considered part of the Twin Cities, even all the way up here. But we're talking, there are more people in Antioch than Minneapolis or St. Paul. It was filled with Greeks. It was filled with Jews. It was filled with Romans. And unbelievably, it was actually also uh, home to Persians, Indians, and even Chinese. There were people from that far away because this is a port city and a gateway into a lot of the area. Paved boulevards, hanging gardens, and fountains paint this picture of a budding cosmopolitan setting. Now, the persecution first started actually by Saul himself, drove the movement of the church to this city. And some of them even started to preach good news to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. Now, that's very interesting because Peter wasn't given permission to do that yet, and yet these guys had already started doing it. I really think that this shows how God is kind of orchestrating things and really how we, the church, people, are actually only playing catch-up to God's plans. Yes, he had already unlocked Peter on this area, but then he'd already allowed for some people to start. So it's not like he waited for Peter to come home and then start preaching in Jerusalem and then went out. God's kind of got things going all over the place. And so in Antioch, the Gentiles are already receiving the gospel news. And it's really cool that we get to see and understand that God's always moving. He's not waiting on you. He's not waiting on you or me to say yes. 
God's got his plan. God's got a mission has nothing to do with you. It's going to happen either way. It's whether or not you are willing to play catch up. Whether you're ready to play the role that God does have designed for you. Either way, God's always moving. He's not waiting on us. The success of the church is not contingent upon you. It's going to happen either way. Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 22 through 24. News uh, of this, of Antioch being converted, uh, of the Christians, or uh, uh, of the gospel being preached in Antioch and people becoming believers. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, he was a good man. This is Barnabas. Luke is actually speaking really highly of Barnabas. Barnabas is a very cool character uh, when it comes to the story of Acts. Luke says this about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I like this connection here. And a great number. Be kind of praising Barnabas for being the guy who says yes to the mission, who decides to go up and be what he's supposed to be. Barnabas is dispatched from Jerusalem to investigate about 300 miles south of Antioch, so probably about 15 days travel, he heads up. Interesting, because for the first time, we're not seeing an original apostle going to confirm the conversion. Up until now, for the last seven to eight years, we've only ever seen an apostle go and actually see the conversion to, to, to qualify the presence of the Holy Spirit in a group of people. But this time we're actually seeing Barnabas, not one of the original. Now he's been a part of a lot of adventures, certainly, yes, but not one of the originals, not one of the original apostles yet. Now, I don't know why that is. There could be a bunch of different reasons. But looking at Luke's high speech on Luke's, uh, uh, on Barnabas's character, see Barnabas, other than this moment, He's known for having a big heart. I mean, we're going to see a lot of his story on display throughout Acts. Barnabas is known for having a really big heart. In fact, he's called a son of encouragement, a Barnabas. In my mind, I like to think that they sent Barnabas not only to account for the conversions, to see if the Holy Spirit really was there. I think that they sent Barnabas because of his nature. I think they sent Barnabas because they knew that they needed someone who was going to be gracious someone who's going to be understanding. If we're sending up someone to a Gentile church, someone who, people who don't understand faith, who don't understand the Jewish way yet, that's an interesting and difficult challenge. Don't you agree? Has anyone here ever worked with young ones before? Have you worked with little, little kids? And would you agree that it takes kind of a whole lot of patience and understanding and encouragement to work with little ones. Because sometimes they get distracted, sometimes they don't get what's going on, and you have to be really encouraging. You have to use a special little kid voice. All right, let's do it this way. Oh, no, 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 maybe not that way. You, we have to speak gently, right? Because if you just snap to them, then you get fidgety kids who are just kind of afraid of you, and, and that doesn't do anybody <laughs> any good. And I think that they send Barnabas because they know that the people in Antioch are children in faith. Because they don't, they don't know anything yet. They don't know anything about the Old Testament. 
They don't know anything about Jewish tradition and culture. They don't know anything about that and how Jesus plays this special part in that story. In fact, already, I kind of skipped over it, but already when they started to preach to the Gentiles in Antioch, they called him Lord Jesus because they understood that the Gentile people, they don't even understand what necessarily Christ means. Right? So they send Barnabas, a guy who's known for encouragement, known for having a big heart. You see, the Jewish converts, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, for the most part, we're seeing them as stiff people. I mean, and it makes sense. For thousands of years, they've done it one way. They've been expecting a certain thing. And now, after Jesus, everything is absolutely topsy-turvy, not at all what they expected. Thousands of years of Jewish culture are coming to a halt. And in seven short years, they are completely flipped around, uh, not understanding how exactly they're supposed to be doing things. And so they're stiff, right? The chapter started with Peter having to convince the others what had happened. They're stiff. So they send Barnabas. And this is something that I think we need to pay special attention to. Why? Because we are a lot like that first church. We are a Gentile church. We're a lot like them. We have varied backgrounds. We have different contexts. We have different views. Some of us, again, have been believers since we can remember. Some are new believers. Some are still considering the church. Some of us grew up going to church and feel odd when we miss church. Others did not grow up going to church. And so missing a service doesn't feel so out of place. Some of the talents for some of us are really easy to see, while other talents will be hidden away in a lamp. There's so much diversity in our church, and it looks a lot like what Antioch was experiencing. And so to be able to exist in a church like that one, a church like this one, is going to take grace. It's going to take encouragement. It takes an attitude like Barnabas for even a small church like ours to get together. To be part of a diverse church will take grace for one another. Even the small one like this, we need to have grace, understanding, and encouragement for one another. So being part of a mission-oriented, mission-gold, mission-minded kind of a church, we have to get along. It's mixed, but we have to be united, and it's going to take grace. But that's not all it's going to take, actually. If we continue on into Acts chapter 11, verse 25 through 26, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So Barnabas, he sees the people at Antioch and decides he needs backup. So he goes to Tarsus to look for Paul or look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, the very first time that we see that label. Barnabas goes to recruit Saul. Now, perhaps he recalls that Saul has this special place in God's plan as the apostle to the Gentiles. And since this is ground zero for Gentiles being made privy to the gospel news, wise in wisdom, Barnabas goes and seeks Saul out. 
and they begin the process of teaching these new believers, which is a big deal because remember, this is a whole brand spanking new religion to these people. All right? They didn't have lesson plans developed by group publishing, right? They didn't have podcasts that they were all each able to just willy-nilly pick up on their phones and listen to a plethora of Christian writers and authors and special Christian leaders. They didn't have that. This is a brand spanking new religion to these people. Recall, most of the people that they are teaching are more than likely polytheists, uh, uh, polytheists who believe in lots of gods and lots of varied religions. And so to hear this monotheistic version of a Christian God, of Jesus Christ as his Savior, that's weird stuff. Imagine you and me decided just to go and pick up some random Eastern religion that we didn't know, and then we're going to become experts and throw ourselves at this. This is a difficult thing. The audience is unfamiliar with this new faith. So you've got to have grace for them. You've got to have grace for them as they learn and as they grow. And also they, those people who are learning from Saul and from Barnabas, they had to have humility as they are led by God-placed leadership. In discipleship, in learning more about God, there's no room for defiance. There's room for curiosity, definitely. But there isn't room for defiance. A disciple must be a willing and submissive person to God-placed leadership. It's going to take humility for a church to get along so that they can play their role to the greater mission of spreading the gospel. They adopt the name Christians here in this reading. They adopt the name Christians because they are being taught to imitate Christ. There's only a couple of times in the New Testament where this specific Christian moniker is used. Now, we believe, scholars believe, it may be due to an unexperienced newcomer, which they were. They were unexperienced newcomers, not deciphering and understanding the subtle difference between Christ as a position, as Judaism understands it, Jesus the Christ, compared to these newcomers who understand it as Jesus Christ. For example, we say Jesus Christ as if it were a whole name not Jesus the Christ, this position. It is Jesus who is Christ. And in this subtle difference, that's where they start, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. That's where it came from. And they began to imitate that. And soon they became Christians. They were followers. For example, we know people who are Lutherans, right? They follow a theology and a set of beliefs by Luther. And so to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we must be Christians even though it's a position. So even though it's just kind of this weird misunderstanding, the truth is I really don't think that this simple misnomer is worthy of correction. Because being an imitator of Christ, I think that's okay. We know who that is. We know what that means. They're simply trying their best to follow Jesus' example. This church will soon bear fruit and prove its legitimacy as a Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled church. Even though we've not, this is interesting, this maybe is just interesting to me, but even though we have not explicitly seen charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, we haven't seen that in this Antioch church account. This church, however, still exhibits Christ-like characteristics and a Holy Spirit-filled pattern. For example, 
in verse 11, uh, 29 through 30, they know someone was able to see a famine that was coming to Jerusalem soon. Again, a different city, a different area. And there were uh, religious leaders who came from Jerusalem to speak to Antioch, and they says, we know that a famine is coming. And so in response to a sister church that's far away, the disciples, the, the, the Gentile believers in Antioch, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. They collected their things. They put together what resources that they had, and they sent it with Saul and Barnabas to go and take care of people who needed help in Jerusalem. Didn't know them personally, but sent mission money, mission resource, mission food to go and take care of the people there. This generosity is a sign of the Holy Spirit. We might not be seeing tongues at this moment, but we know that this qualifies them. It's why Luke attaches this story to the church in Antioch. This is a similar fruit, really, that I've seen our church participate in over and over again. Another characteristic that ties our church similarly to the church in Antioch. We see need, and we do what we can to help those people, whether it be through prayer, through encouragement, through spending time with one another, through meals, and even financial resource. Our small church has been able to do some really amazing and grand things, some really big things, truly. Unbelievably, this small thing, we could create a lot of great resource because you guys do pretty good stuff with the Blue Bowl. I've been able to see some really cool stories. You don't know them all, but I promise you that they're there, and I'm so proud that this little church gets to play its role in this mission-minded, mission-goal, mission-centered church. Even as small as we are, we get to do good things for the kingdom. This is the very description of the church as found in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, where they took care of one another's needs, where they put each other ahead of one another, where they didn't look to themselves and instead made sure that everyone had what they needed. This description defines them as a Christ-led and Spirit-filled church. Yeah, they're mixed. Yeah, they're young in faith, but they are united. And in this way, we ought to be defined also through our giving, through our generosity, through our unity, being Christ-centered imitators of our Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so if you just look at a few things, if we just to recap what we've gone through, Antioch was a mixed church, but they were still united. They were led by Barnabas, who was a grace-filled man. And so we ought to have grace for one another even though we are different in so many ways. And they were also led by Saul. And they had humility to him because he was God-placed leadership. And so we ought to have humility to our leaders, to myself and the other men who've stepped up to lead with me uh, this church. Uh, and lastly, we should always recognize that this generosity is a big sign, a presence of the Holy Spirit in our church. So as you look at those things, as you recap what we've covered so far through Acts, I want you to know this is finally that first Christian church of which we are related. For the next handful of weeks, we're actually going to step back uh, from Acts. 
uh, next week with Thanksgiving, I'm actually going to start a new series uh, that's a little more topical where we're going to talk about, and I've never done this before, it's kind of interesting, I haven't seen it at another church before, uh, where we're going to create a series from Thanksgiving all the way to Christmas, actually, and how Thanksgiving is tied into uh, our understanding of Christ's uh, coming, uh, his reception, uh, and how we ought to respond and have Thanksgiving even before he's here. So we're going to take a step back, and then we're actually going to jump back into Acts next year. Unbelievably, we're talking about 2020. Uh, so Acts in January, but for the next handful of weeks, uh, we'll be talking about Thanksgiving uh, to Christmas. Uh, let me offer a word of prayer, uh, and then we will dismiss. Dear God, you know, I'm... I'm so thankful that we, as a church, you get to read about the history uh, of those who've gone before us, that we get to see this uh, example set for us in Antioch. I can't even imagine the kinds of challenges that they went through. And to be able to see your Holy Spirit unite them, uh, to see Barnabas encourage them, to see Saul teach, to see Saul teach them. Uh, Father, I'm thankful for the history that we get to learn from them. Um, I pray, Lord, that, of course, that this history wouldn't remain interesting alone. Instead, that that same Holy Spirit that united them then would unite us still. This church here, Life Fellowship, so far away in geography, so far away in time and in context and in just every possible way. But the common denominator, of course, is this Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be united to him that although they were called Christians so long ago, that we still would be referenced as these Christians, imitator of Jesus, people who would give up of themselves for others' sake. Please, Lord, I pray that people would know us by Christ, as our, our Christian attitudes first, that they would see our selflessness above all things, and that we would be able to glorify your name and push the mission even further, push the momentum of the gospel even further by our imitation of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we get to worship together and to glorify you. I pray these things in your Holy Son's name. Amen.